0: Good morning, church. Our Bible reading is taken from Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. Verse 1, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called, on, called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Draw not nine hidden Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place whereon thou standest is holy, around. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. This is the word of God. Now,
1: good morning church. Uh, Let's go back to Exodus chapter 3. Some of you are not familiar with this story, but many of you are familiar with the story of Moses and the burning bush. Moses is a central figure from cover to cover in the Bible. In fact, he would not have, the way it is written, the very first five books were it not for this man, Moses. Moses is an amazing figure because as he's revealed to us throughout those first five books, we find him more commonly for his failures than for his successes more for his weaknesses than his strengths and yet God chose this man Moses to become synonymous with the law of God you'll find Jesus at times saying you have read Moses rather than saying you've read the law of God this guy is an amazing character the book of Genesis written by Moses is the background for the rest of not just the Bible, but especially those next four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Hebrew people call that the Torah, the teaching. But when you get to Exodus, it's Moses writing his own life story. And he doesn't write it as the hero. He writes it with every honest detail of his failures but every powerful move of God. And that's one of the things I appreciate most about the writings of Moses. In fact, when we come to chapter 3 and see Moses' life and ministry, he has been transformed in chapter 2 from being the heir apparent of the throne of Egypt to a shepherd on the backside of the desert in Arabia. Um, Probably one of the greatest archaeological changes in thinking in in bible teachers in the last decade has been the location of this very mountain now this mountain here is called in verse 1 mount horeb it's explained further that mount horeb is mount sinai and tradition for nearly 2000 years has placed that in the sinai peninsula which belongs to egypt but more and more archaeological evidence follows what the bible actually says in the book of Galatians, that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. We would call it today Saudi Arabia. And if Acacia could pop that picture up there. That is the mountain. It's a real mountain. It's a real place. It's a real place where at the least hundreds of thousands of Jewish people, but more than likely two million, fled from Egypt and over a period of some weeks traversed and came to this mountain. Now, wherever the mountain is located, what's important is who met Moses at the mountain. And today I want to talk about, take your shoes off, a lesson in obedience. When Moses is here at Mount Sinai, Horeb, in chapter 3, verse 1, he has no idea what things are going to happen, what things will transpire uh, in, in, in the next year. The next year is going to flip Moses on his head, which is pretty funny because he's 80 years old. Now, I'm, I'm getting older, Paul, but I'm not 80 yet. And I can't imagine being 80 and being a shepherd on the backside of the desert and, and seeing your, your life turned around so radically uh, in a short period of time. But in, at Mount Sinai, Moses meets God in this simple way at the bush. But at right now, the bush is burning, but a year from now, the mountain will be burning. And he will see that with his own eyes. First thing I want us to take a look at. Let's let's come back to chapter 3, verse 1. Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert, came to the mountain of God, the place. The place God led him to teach him obedience. God's plan meant that Moses was going to have to leave Egypt behind. And yet Moses even records in chapter 2 that it's his own fault. Moses goes out. He, he's known since a child, raised by his Hebrew mother. He knew he was Hebrew and that he was not Egyptian. But he grows in the palace of Pharaoh. Now, you've got to try to comprehend the power of Pharaoh. Just, if any of that stuff interests you, pyramids, sphinxes, tombs in the Valley of the Kings, those those pharaohs had immense power. They were the world power until the events of the Exodus. After the events of the Exodus, they became not second rate, but they lost so much power that you begin to watch other kingdoms rise, and they just knock Egypt back into its place over and over again. This place, Egypt, is a place of incredible power, incredible demonic spiritual forces, but incredible wealth, incredible armies incredible construction the construction projects that exist in Egypt we today with our advanced technology still have no idea how they did it the the giant pyramids at Giza outside of Cairo you to, to see the size of the blocks and these things were built the time of Abraham like hundreds of years before Moses how did they move those blocks how did they get them on top of each other how, all that stuff is fascinating. That was the this, is the, this is the environment Moses is coming into as a leader. It's going to be his. There could be one day that there is a pyramid to, they think his name was Sobekhotep. They think that may have been his, his Egyptian name. He would have been, he could have been a pharaoh. But he details how when he went out to look on the sufferings of his true people, the Jews, the Hebrews who were being, treated as slaves by the Egyptians, he actually stopped a fight or a beating by one of them and killed an Egyptian. And then, because the news of that spread, he fled from Egypt. Like he lost everything in one moment of anger. Does that teach us anything about anger? There could have been, like, there could have been all these statues, Ramesses and Khufu, and, and naming all, the, uh, all of the ancient uh, Egyptian pharaohs. There could have been a, one that was Moses. One moment of anger cost him everything. But you see, God works all things to his plan. God didn't desire that Egyptian die without knowing the true God. God didn't desire that. But God takes and turns that around. Now, as Moses flees, Moses has no idea that he's going to go from eating the finest things that Egypt had to offer to dining in the desert with a bunch of sheep. Just look at your Bible sometime in the maps and find Midian. And then if you you have a phone, go Google Earth and go look at that area. That is one dry, desolate place, except for infrequent rains, which make this part of Port Moresby look like a swamp with massive rains. We don't get that rain. They get a lot less than we do. And that's where he goes to live, with sheep on the backside of the desert. It's a huge change. But it's what God engineered for his life. This place that God has led him. Moses, according to the book of Acts, in the the sermon that Stephen preached, Moses really believed that he was gonna use his influence and his power to deliver his people. That was Moses' plan. That's in the book of Acts. You don't see that in Exodus. But in the book of Acts, he thought he could do that but God didn't want it to be that way. God didn't want a Pharaoh of Egypt to deliver his people because then who gets the credit? Who gets credit? The Pharaoh does, Egypt gets credit. We enslaved you, we set you free. God said, no, 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 no. I am not gonna let a Pharaoh set you free, whether it's you, Moses, or whether it's, it's the one on the throne before you. No, I'm going to set these people free. And Moses has to go through this crisis to begin to learn obedience God uses weakness God uses weakness we hate to be weak I hate to be weak I was sick last week I hated that I wanted to be down here with you guys and I was like get up and the body said nope sit down weakness but what is what does God say through the apostle Paul God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to what confound the wise He has chosen the weak things of the world to confound things that are mighty. To confound it. To make them go, what? Huh? Huh? There's no way. That's confounding. Making them like, there's no way. This should not fit. God chose the base things, the lowest things of the world, and the things which are despised hath God chosen. The things which are not to bring to naught, to nothing. The things which are that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. Amen. Coming into the Christmas Advent season, there is few. There are few stories in world history that compare to Mary and Joseph in a manger with the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father being born in the middle of a bunch of animals few things, but God chose that. God does that. Why? That the, that the excellency of the power might be of God and not of any of us. God doesn't choose the wise. You you ever wonder, man, boy, if that guy got saved, like he has such a presence. He's such a intelligent guy. He's such a good speaker. Why doesn't God save people like that? Because everybody go, wow, what a great speaker. What an intelligent guy. No, God picks people like us. Simple, everyday people who can manifest Christ in our weakness, in our lack of being something, but showing that God has made a difference in us. He, he chooses weakness. He, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, he even told Paul, Paul's like, God, I've got this one infirmity and it stops me. I could do so much more. And God's response is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He said, Paul, he said to me, my grace is sufficient. It's sufficient for thee my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so therefore, Paul was able to say, most gladly therefore will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I, I don't know that he ever got victory over being frustrated that he was weak, that he had whatever problems he had, some think it was his vision. I don't know if he ever got over that. But I know that as he thought it through theologically and spiritually, he was like, no God, you're right. I'm wrong show yourself strong God chooses obscurity to do things we think of the great Apostle Paul honestly if you lived in Paul's day he was not that great a man in the sense of who liked him we love him we look at his books in the New Testament you look at how the Galatians felt about him how the Corinthians felt about him you look at how the Romans the the Roman government thought about him how the Jews thought about him he was not a very popular guy in fact, he, after his conversion, goes, goes to Arabia. Huh, some people think he went to Mount Sinai just to follow what Moses did, just to follow what Elijah did. Maybe I can meet God there like my two heroes, Moses and Elijah. He's there. We don't know what happened at Arabia. He goes from there, he goes home, back to Tarsus. He's in Tarsus a number of years after his conversion. What is he doing in Tarsus? We have no idea. Obscurity, you know who he is? He's the former persecutor of the church, but now he's just a guy in Tarsus. When they bring him to Antioch, though, he has matured a lot because God has used the obscurity, the, 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 the loneliness, the, the way of being out of the spotlight to help Saul become a more mature believer. God uses anonymity, like nobody knows you. You know, as much as we like to enjoy the story of Gideon, the the great leader of Israel fought against the Midianites. The story opens with him hiding behind a wine press, like behind that wall, and he's back there breaking the the sheaves of wheat. Look up over it. Any enemies? Nobody knows this guy. He's just a guy. David, before he becomes Saul's armor bearer, is a shepherd, a young shepherd, young like all of our young guys out in the desert. In fact, when, when Samuel comes to David's dad, Jesse, and says, I want to have a meal with you and your family, they don't even call David. He's that insignificant. God uses that. The lady that, that won a decisive victory for Israel, her name was Jael. Remember, she took a nail and she stunk it through the head of the general of the enemy's army she killed him. What the general of the Israeli army could not do, a woman with a, with a glass of milk, he drinks it, he lays down, she grabs a tent peg and drives it through his head. We don't know what she did before that, and we don't know what she did after that, but that moment is marked. The obscurity and the anonymity. The Proverbs 31 woman, we always wonder, who is that lady? There's so many good attributes about her. I'd like to know her name. I'd like to say, oh, it was this lady. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, anonymity. Nobody knows. You see, God. you think God doesn't know who we are, where we are here in Port Moresby. He absolutely does. He ordained that you be here in this place, at this time, in this century, in this year. This is where He wants you. And, as, and believer, hear me, God is using the obscurity, the anonymity, because that's where the greatness of His power is seen. It's in the faithfulness of God to his people in their good times and in their bad times, and then their faithfulness to him. God's doing that. Sometimes it's a long road. Joseph had a really long road before he came to power in this same country of Egypt, a pit and in prison, and having been hated by his brothers and then hated by his master and then cast, guys got it, it was horrible for him, it was a long road. But God was faithful to him. He, therefore, was faithful to God. Faithful daily obedience is the key in good times and bad. You and I cannot be faithful to God if He were not faithful to us. But He is faithful in everything that comes our way, in every trial, in every good thing, in every long drawn out thing. He abides faithful. He won't deny himself. He won't deny you. He is faithful, therefore he calls to us. Be faithful. You see, there's a place that God leads us to teach us obedience. And he never forgets. Hebrews 6.10 tells us, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. God is faithful to notice what you do. In our Barocco faith family, we've been going through the book of Revelation, and if you're not going to a faith family, I certainly invite you to be in one of the three at Hanawabata here on campus, or our meeting in Barocco. We'd love to have you come and be one of those groups. But we have just, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, just the first two, three chapters, there's something that is repeated by Jesus, and it is, I know thy works. I know your works. I know what you've been doing. And in almost every instance except one, He knows what they've been doing, and he says, I I haven't missed a thing. Thank you. I know what you've been doing. The place God has you means God has his eye on you. And that is more important than anything he sees. Come back to chapter 3. He's there, and the angel of the Lord appears to him in the flame of fire out of the bush. And you're like, who is the angel of the Lord? Verse 4 explains it's the Lord himself. And verse 4, it says, When the Lord saw that he, Moses, turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. More important than the place that God has put Moses and the place God has put you and me, more important is the person who meets you in the place where he has you. That's way more important, the person. God, in using the small things as well as the great, is to show that the greatness is in himself. I I can't play an instrument. I can press the music app on my phone and scroll through there and get and then and then I get alone. Now if I'm all alone I will sing out loud. And the Lord seems to like it when I sing out loud by myself. But when other people are around, me say passive mouse because you would think I'll say caddy die or cow sick or one MM but i'm I, I i'm not really jealous but i am jealous for people that can play any kind of an instrument you know and and a good person that plays an instrument can play anyone now obviously the better the instrument they would like to play a better instrument to have a better quality but you could give them you could give uh, nita the worst clarinet in the world and if she could fiddle with it she could make it make good sounds brianna could do that with the flute and Katie with the keyboard and my brothers with the guitar. You can take a bad one. You take one of the string is broken and you do it. You see, it's, it's, the, it's the person playing the instrument that's even more important than the instrument. And that's what God's doing with our lives. When he has control, he knows how to make the best music with us as his yielded vessels. Moses is here but Moses is about to have his mind blown. I, th- I think of people in this situation with Moses. The bush speaks. I've never had a bush talk to me. Maybe I've had a high fever and I've seen some crazy things, but I've never had a bush talk to me. This bush is talking to Moses, but he doesn't even, he doesn't even go, way I'm on him. No, no, no. The bush said, Moses, Moses, and he's like, here am I. You know, you, I don't know about you, but I think it would be, I would be showing the, the, the bush my elbows and my heels. Like, I'm out of here. Bush is talking. Uh-uh-uh. No, no, he, he, he's like, here, here I am. Here am I. Think about what he's hearing. He's, he's hearing This is the first time this happens in Scripture where a man hears the voice of God past the Garden of Eden in the way he does. But I think of in the rest of Scripture, Bible says that Paul, that Paul was was taken up to paradise and he heard the unspeakable. John in the book of Revelation says, I was caught up and he saw the unimaginable. Moses' protege, who in, in, within the next year will be Moses' right hand everywhere he goes, his name is Joshua. In a few chapters, Joshua is gonna be standing outside Jericho and he is going to meet the invincible, the captain of the Lord's host. This is God manifesting himself to people. Come, come with me to Isaiah. This is, this is, this is the guy who gets the, the ushered into the throne room of God, Isaiah chapter 6. Come with me and read this, because this is just mind-boggling. What is it like when you meet it? Moses has got this this, this, this voice speaking from the bush, but. John and Paul had seen him and Joshua is going to see him as an invincible warrior. Look what Isaiah sees. Isaiah 6. This is the same one that Moses is talking to. This, is, this has got to blow your mind. Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah saw also the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up in his train. His, his garment filled the temple in heaven. And above it, stood the seraphims. each one had six wings. With Twain, with two of them, he covered his face. With Twain he covered his feet, and with Twain he did flies. This is a, what kind of beasts are these? We do know one thing. One cried to another, verse three. One cried to another and said, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory." And how loud was it? Oh, verse four. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah is in the throne room of God. This is the very same God who Moses is meeting in a bush. But when you see him where he really lives... The response of Isaiah is, woe is me, I am undone. This is like on the floor, cowering, curled up in the fetal position. Please, please don't kill me. That's the response. This is that God. But that isn't what Moses needed to see. Moses didn't need to see that God. Isaiah did. Paul saw a different thing, heard a different thing. John saw and heard a different thing. Joshua at Jericho saw and heard a different thing. Same God. Brothers and sisters, hear me. God may not meet you like Isaiah 6. God may not meet you with a burning bush, but I want you to know in the person of Jesus Christ, God is all about meeting you. And God wants you to meet with him. This is, this is his call. Moses spoke with the presence of the personal God. God doesn't say, Yo. God doesn't say, hey you. You blah out Harim. He's like Moses. Moses. You see, God is personal. For us, God is personal in the the person of Jesus Christ. This is the world-creating God. Moses himself would later write about that as he writes the history. The world-creating God. But Moses is about to learn him to be the promise-keeping, prayer-answering God. And that's the God that you and I need to know. If, If our religion were that of Islam we would be in a perpetual state of Isaiah 6. Because Allah is not a personal God. Allah is not concerned with your personal being. Allah is concerned with your obedience, raw obedience. And He gives you no promise of how He will bless you. This is their doctrine. No promise of how He will bless you for your obedience. But I want you to know the Bible it's filled with people meeting with God and God manifesting himself in different ways for the different situations of His people, and God wants to meet with you. God wants to meet with you. How beautiful is that? Thomas says to Jesus, "Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us." Jesus said, "Thomas,' been you so long. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father." That was what those disciples needed, and that's the God we have now. Yes, the holy, transcendent God of the Old Testament is our God, but hear me, He's Jesus. Christ Jesus, born of a virgin in an obscure manger in a town called Bethlehem, grew up as a man just like you and I, tempted in all points of sin, just like we are, yet without sin. He got tired. He got hungry. The Scripture records that. But without sin, He was able to offer Himself for us. I'm fascinated every time I think of the Gospel shape of the knowledge of God. God created the world, and He created it perfect. Every time someone questions you and says, if there's a God, why is there so much trouble in the world? That is such an easy question to answer. The answer is man. Man. God created man, perfect in a perfect environment, and then he gave man a choice. And that very choice is the thing we took and threw it back in the face of God and said, I'll listen to a serpent. I'll do what I want. And when we do, Adam plunged us into all the problems we see today. Thousands of years of history of death and destruction, hatred, vile, filthy ungodliness because of one man's sin. That's the mess we're in. Not God's fault. You say, why, God, why didn't God do something about it? Oh, He did. Oh, He did. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made unto the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, what? believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life that message is the gospel shape of the isaiah 6 god the burning bush god in the person of jesus and jesus says come into me all ye that labor and heavy laden i will give you rest i won't scare you away i won't make you huddle like a baby in the corner ready to fill your nappy because you're so afraid of me i've come to love you God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. This is that God. This is the person who met Moses. This is the person who wants you to meet Him. He doesn't need us. As the great and mighty God, He doesn't need us. He existed without us. He will exist without us afterward. But He chooses to bring us To himself that should make us worship God he desires to have us God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us the wages of sin is death but the gift of God not something you can work for the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us, He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Listen, I I don't know where you, you met God, but it was your bush. And that's where God was bringing you. And if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, not an abstract God who lives at a distance, but the God who insists on dwelling in you, remember that's his name Emmanuel God with us I tell you please you need to know him he's standing by he's calling you he's drawing you he is he's there I'm there I want you to meet it Uh, in this lesson of obedience so how does this how does this all come together this is where it gets beautiful verse 5 after he calls Moses in verse 4, and Moses said, here am I, God says this to Moses. He said, draw not nigh hither. Don't, Don't come close to this burning bush. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. The lesson that God taught him is that Ground, emi been one time, all this sip sip. Emi holy ground. I don't think this is Moses' first time to this mountain. He's he's a shepherd. Shepherds know where the water is. Shepherd knows. Where, shepherds know where the grass is. And every year they lead their sheep to the same places. Why? Because they know that it's going to grow. They know there's going to be water there. Moses has been doing this for how many years? four zero. That's almost as long as I've been alive. 40 years. 40 years. It's possible he's been 40 times to this place, and he's never seen this before. He's never noticed this before, but what God is teaching him is, Moses, this place is holy. Can I say this? I don't believe if he's been there 40 times. The other 39 times that it was holy it's not holy because of what it is it's holy because of who is there god's presence makes it a holy place this this is only said one other time in the bible and it's to moses protege joshua outside jericho outside the ungodly city the city that its wickedness it's just horrible when you just when you just the old testament does this it cleans up our lives so much the old testament mentions the names of they worshiped baal and Ashtorel. And we read that, okay, so, those people, in their context, would go, and they wouldn't talk about it. Because of the vileness of the religious ceremonies involved. Sexual perversion, sacrifice of children, ungodly, ungodly things that they did. And all you had to do is say, the worship of Baal. And a Hebrew would go, The Bible cleans all that up for us. When Joshua is outside Jericho, he knows what goes on inside those walls. And this man stands up in front of him and says, take off your shoes, son. You're on holy ground. This is holy ground. Uh Uh-uh. There's so much vileness in there, it flows over this ground like filth and disgust. Take your shoes off. This is holy ground because I'm here. You know where holy ground is? It's on your mat where you have your prayer time. It's in the corner of your veranda. It's under the mango tree. It's that place where you, Christian, you go to meet God. Drivers, it might be in your bus when you're having to wait. You're lined up and say, This is some time I'm going to pray and talk to God. Everywhere you go, Christian, Every place the sole of your foot touches is holy ground because the God of Isaiah 6, the God of the burning bush, indwells you. The Spirit of God dwells in you. That place is holy ground and you and I better learn to respect everywhere we walk. Respect everywhere we walk. This pulpit is holy, but it's not holy because of me. It's holy because of the God that's here. The chair you sit in is holy. Not because it's inside a church building. It's holy because of the presence of God. And the, and the sooner we realize, we get that lesson, that every, every bush is holy, every ground where we walk with the Spirit of God is holy. God's ordained steps for me, the things He wants me to do, the places He leads me, is to be in His presence. Every place is holy. You know what's interesting about the Bible? The word holy appears for the first time in that verse. We've made it through 52 chapters of the Bible, and the word holy has never been mentioned. This is it. And the first time it's mentioned, it's not the tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant. It's on a mountainside in Arabia. God's lesson for Moses, I am about to transform everything around you. Everything in your life, everything in your people's life, and everything in Egypt. But let's start right here, get your shoes off. This place is holy. Do you have a Sunday part of your life and a Monday part of your life? I propose that your Mondays and Tuesdays should be as holy as your Sundays. You say, but, but I'm busy, that's when I'm in my, oh no, no, your work should just be a sanctified part of your life. Your worship here with your brothers and sisters. Praise God for the opportunity we have to meet together. But your Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Saturdays all ought to be holy ground. We as God's people should be drawing near. H- how do we live holy? How do we live holy? Let's look real quickly. Three, chapter 3, verse 4. Moses, God called Moses, Moses. And Moses didn't do like me and want to run away. He responded, here am I. Don't be looking for YouTube prophets and Facebook Pharisees. You and I have the privilege to read God's word ourselves. And and are we? Do you? You see, that's how God speaks to you. He's not coming down out of heaven and giving, I had this dream. You had pizza, okay? You had something I'm making you dream on. Your dream means something to you, but you can't prove that to me. But you can show me from the pages of Scripture. This, I read this this week, and wow, God really met with me here. That's it. Your, your anchor needs to be in what God says. So you need to listen to it. You need to say when the Scripture is, is, is working in your heart, you need to be that, here am I. Verse 5, when, when God told Moses to take his shoes off his feet obedience is the key to growing spiritually it says in verse 6 that Moses hid his face I cannot but believe that Moses whipped his sandals off in one direction and and covered up I don't think he ignored what God said when God said take those shoes off do you know that one of the most difficult things as a new Christian is to learn obedience some of you know the patch the pirate song obedience I'm sure Miss Katie and the teachers could all sing it for us. But obedience is the key, and it's the truth. Growing spiritually doesn't happen if you aren't obedient. And the obedience is, is in the simple things. We don't get to pick and choose what we obey. Well, I know the Bible says that, but it's hard for me to give that thing up. So I'm, I'm, I'll hold that one, God. But these nine, ten things, I'll give that up. I'll change my life about that. Just I, I have to hold that. I, I can't change. I've heard that so many times in my life. You know what? The Spirit of God, who is God, who is the God of the bush and the God of Isaiah's throne room in Isaiah 6 is the same God that dwells within you. And He desires you to be holy in His presence. And He desires to give you victory. Can I tell you this? Some of us, me included, are going to fight with certain sins your whole life. But the Spirit of God that's in you says, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. Because one day, there'll be that last breath taken. And as that last breath, last breath is taken, among other things, as you say your goodbyes, you say, I am about to awaken a newness of life that I can't imagine, but sin is behind. But too many Christians just say, well, you know, I just can't beat that one, so I'm just going to hold on to that one. I'm going to live with that sin. And it keeps dragging you down, and you wonder, why don't I grow spiritually? Why am I struggling in my faith? It's because your sin means more to you than the holy God of heaven. Whatever that sin is. New believer, hear me. When God opens your mind through the Word, through the preaching of the Word, you say, man, am I supposed to do that? put it aside give it away give it away i remember when i was first converted i i wasn't allowed to go to church by my parents i would hear chapel messages at the christian school where i went and all of my classmates were, were church kids it was all blah, boring to them and i'm just going really i can't do that I, I was 15 years old and i didn't realize there were people in the world that didn't drink alcohol and they were talking about, you know, don't get drunk and whatever. And I'm like, why? And I was like, oh, wait, the Bible actually says that? Really? I grew up in alcohol. I was drinking alcohol by the time I was old enough to put it in a bottle. You see, the point is, God, it's, it's like deal with the sins that you know. De- grow. Step forward. That, I, I should. I should be reading. I should be praying. I should be sharing, sharing with my friends and my family. Be obedient. One step at a time. Obey what you learn. Do the next thing. Do the simple thing. We keep thinking, oh, I'll just do some great thing for you. Jesus put it this way He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. God tests you with the small things. How many times in, in, in my life in ministry have I watched young people? I have a desire to serve in the ministry. And so you give them this assignment good we really need some help can you help clean this area up over here and you know keep things in order or whatever and some of them do it some of them just get on it and stay on it and some of them just go off with their friends and are like oh i did this little thing and and you know what i find they just don't do it a brother explained it to me like this he said you want to see somebody grow as a christian he said just think of it as you throw them a ball He said, if they throw it back, throw it back to them. And if they throw it back, throw it back to them. Because you'll find a lot of them, you throw it to them, and they just drop it and walk away. Brothers and sisters, God puts the ball in your court. God gives the ball to you. And he says, come on, let's do this. Let's do the next thing. Let's do the simple thing. This, within a chapter and a half, you're going to see the greatest disobedience in the Bible, in the Pharaoh of Egypt. When Moses says, let my people go, the Lord said, let my people go, and he goes, who's the Lord? I don't know him, and I'm not letting your people go. Do you know that I feel as a Christian, when I refuse to be obedient to God, that my mind and my heart are actually more like Pharaoh than they are like Moses? Who are you? I'm just not going to deal with that one. Brothers and sisters, hear me. God is calling us to holiness and to obedience. And the obedience comes, you hear it, you obey it. We're new creatures in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. God is working on us. He's changing. His spirit lives in us. He gives us strength. And our example is Jesus. How is is he our example? Philippians 2. It said in Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Why? Because he's God. But he made himself of this, no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant. Both of those things are you stepping down so that you can be obedient. He did that. He was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. So he goes from no reputation to a servant, then he humbled himself, and he became obedient. And he became obedient, he going up long he die, even the death of the cross. Now that's the obedience of our Savior, the holy God of heaven, the God of Isaiah six, the God of the burning bush, that's what he did for us. Is it unreasonable for him to expect us to do any different? Is it unreasonable for God to call us to holiness so that we can exhibit him to others, You see, the New Testament perspective is not bushes and throne rooms. The New Testament perspective is God's people living holy lives with the people around them, and they stand out. Lights shining in a dark place. City set on a hill, not under a bed or a basket, but living for Jesus because Jesus died and lives in me and for me. Are we obedient is my question this morning. In the simplicity like Moses expresses here in the everyday places, are we obedient? Are we living holy? Are you a believer, a true believer? Have you put your faith in Christ alone? Are you reconciled with God? Because the holy God of heaven, the God of Isaiah 6 in the beautiful throne room and the God of the burning bush with Moses is the God who desires to dwell in your heart by faith. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ. Call out to him. He will save you. It isn't complicated. If that's been God working in your heart today, Christian, are you obedient? Are there things that you lack obedience in that God's been dealing with your heart? I say this morning, please, be obedient and watch God move you to the next step, to the next thing he wants us to do. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of Moses in this profoundly simple situation. I know he never forgot it for the rest of his life. I know it was hard for him to explain to others. But God, in our own lives, each of us here today, each believer, there are these burning bush times where you meet with us and you speak to us. Lord, from the pages of your word, we grasp a truth. So my prayer this morning is for my friends here that they will take that truth, they will embrace it, they will be obedient to it. For those here that don't know Christ as Savior, God, may they embrace those verses where you said you so love the world. That you gave your only begotten Son, Jesus, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And may they embrace that in belief today and call on Christ to save. Lord, as we go to life groups in a few minutes, I pray that you would bless each class time. And I pray this week, Lord, as we walk as men and ladies among men and ladies in our world, may we walk as though we are walking on holy ground and manifest the light of Christ in our lives. And Lord, we thank you again for this privilege to worship together, in Jesus' name, amen.